Okay, our topic for this morning is continuing in the evangelism series. We're going to try to answer some common objections. And I thought of ten common objections off the top of my head. This is not exhaustive by any means. Neither are the answers that I thought of. But they're very common. And if you guys think of something throughout the the lesson, you guys can raise your hand and we'll add something in there. Um, There's plenty of questions, objections people have. But when God has opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel, you are not able to keep it to yourself. And it isn't long before you find yourself conversing with someone who has very real objections to what you're saying. And so my goal this morning is to answer these five questions. What are some common objections? Why would anyone object to this in the first place? How should a Christian react to an an objection? And how do we answer these common objections? And what should we do once we have answered them? Now, you don't need to necessarily memorize these responses. um, But I just think if we go through them, you guys take some notes, commit these verses to memory. It'll be very helpful because often when I'm talking to somebody and they do bring up this happens all the time. They bring up these objections. I can think of the verse, but I can't remember what the reference is. You know what I mean? And so I have my phone and I always look it up on my concordance, always. But anyways, that's what we're going to try to do. Okay, so let's get right into it. What are some common objections? If God made us, who made God? Has anybody heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Yeah. What do you say to that? If God made us, who made God? Okay, I put a few verses on there that explain the nature of of God. And this is what you got to have to do when you're answering these questions. You kind of have to explain more than just the question that they have. So Psalm 90 verse 2, you don't need to turn there. There's a ton of passages. I'll just read it, but if you want to go ahead. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, "Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God." Psalm 93 verse 2 says, "Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting." Okay, so somebody asks you this question. And God's stirring your heart, you're at school, you're at work, you're on the street corner, and uh, you want to share your, share your faith with somebody. They say, okay, Mr. Christian or Miss Christian, who made God? And a lot of times they'll think, oh, I stumped him or I stumped her. You know, that's a tough one. Who made God? Well, the, the answer is that God is eternal. But that doesn't make any sense. Like, a, a temp... A, 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 a mortal, temporal mind. The human mind cannot comprehend eternity. You know what I mean? So, that's the answer though. Who made God? Nobody. He has always been. And there has never been a time without God. And so, it's, I mean, it's a deep question. And you've got to scratch your head and think about it. But that's the answer. God is eternal. He had no beginning and He had no end. And there's a couple of verses there that explain that. There are other places too. I chose those, those two right there. Okay. Next question. This is a common one. If God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there death? Why is there sickness? Why is there war? That's a really good question. Why? Okay, so God made everything. God made us. God is so good. God never does anything wrong. Why is there so many bad things in the world? What do you say to that? Why is there so many bad things in the world? I was listening to an interview last week. Chris Jones sent me this interview where a Christian guy, I think he's a Christian guy, was being asked this question by a very well-known non-Christian. 
don't know if he's an atheist or an agnostic or what, but he immediately, like the guy wasn't witnessing to the interviewer, but he was talking about intelligent design and creation. And immediately the interviewer goes, well, you know, if there's a creator, why is there so much evil in this world? And I was really disappointed in the guy's response because he just totally, it seemed like he dropped the ball. But at the same time, you can't be too hard on somebody, you know, because when you're, when you're in the moment and you're talking to somebody and it's real time, sometimes you can't really, he probably went home and was kicking himself like, man, I should have said this, you know, and I put the verse on there, Romans five twelve, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So the death is passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The answer is very simple. God is good and there is evil in the world and it's not God's fault. It's man's fault. 100% man's fault. And the story makes sense. God made everything good. Everything Adam and Eve knew was good. They never knew any evil. They didn't know any evil until they disobeyed God. And so then death and sickness. And remember, Adam had dominion over the entire world. God gave him dominion over all creation. But when he disobeyed the Lord and sin entered into the world, he gave Satan the dominion that he had. And so this has become the devil's world. And remember, Jesus said that Satan is a murderer from the beginning. And so it makes a lot of sense when you think about there's so much rape and murder and horrible things that happen. Well, by one man, that's the answer. You know, the guy in the interview, he said, you know, I don't really know. I can't really explain that, blah, blah, blah. I've been there. It really stinks when you don't have an answer. So, but you know what? We'll talk about that later a little bit. You can memorize these all day long, but until you're in the moment and until you're sharing your faith with somebody and they ask you a question that you don't know, that's the best way to learn. And that's the best way to grow is to be asked a question that you don't have an answer to. I can remember one example. I had been saved for probably two or three years. I had just moved to Florida. I was living in Ponte Vedra Beach and I would go witnessing and passing out chick tracks on the beach. People on the beach, you know. And a lot of the people went to the big mega church down the road. They wore their bikinis and stuff, and it was just kind of strange. But, I mean, I was walking around without my shirt on, you know, handing out tracks, but it is what it is. But I ran into a guy who claimed to be an Episcopal priest. And he's sitting there under his umbrella with his wife and his kids and uh, gave him the tract. And he was sitting there all cool, calm, and collected. And uh, he asked me, he said, so what do I have to do to be saved? I said, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You have to have faith. He said, oh, yeah? He said, have you ever read the book of James before? I said, yeah, I've read James before. He goes, you know, it says in James that faith without works is dead. So you've got to have faith and works. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> but I had been stumped. I'm like, I have read that before, but I didn't really think much about it. That guy won that argument. I look like a fool. But you know what? I never forgot it. And I went home. And I studied it, and I listened to some preaching, and I did some research. And it was a very simple answer, because Abraham is the context. We can get into that later. But anyways, I really, hindsight, I'm thankful for that guy. At the moment, I, did, I wasn't thankful. I really hated his guts. I was really <laughs> upset. And this Episcopal priest, he's lost and he's wrong. And I remember, I probably told this story before, when uh, me and Connor were in the car with our Church of Christ friend at college. And... Uh, he found out I hadn't been baptized. And he was freaking out. He's like, you haven't been baptized? I'm like, no, I'm saved. And he goes, no, you're not. I'm like, what? 
He goes, let me call my dad. He goes, my dad is a third generation pastor of the Church of Christ. I'm like, oh boy. So it's late at night. We're in the car and I'm having this theological debate with a third generation Church of Christ pastor. And he threw a lot of stuff at me that I had not heard before. And after the conversation, Connor told me, he goes, Gage, don't you think we ought to just get baptized just in case? I'm like, no, no, <laughs> don't. But anyways, he ended up sending me some stuff in the mail. His, Zeke's, his name's Zeke. His dad did. Anyways, it was kind of, you know what, though? You remember those. You remember those times. and That's how you grow and that's how you, you learn. Okay. Number three. And every time I read these questions, I can think of at least one person that has asked me this or said this before. I knew some people who went to church once, but they were hypocrites. Have you heard that before? Yes. Okay. There are, yes, there are hypocrites in church. I am one of them. And so are you. And so are you, yeah. We're all a hypocrite. No, let's be honest. And you know, that's really what it comes down to is a lot of people you talk to, and we can be like that ourselves. They're very, very self-righteous. You know, they don't want to admit that they're two Saturdays ago. We were, I went to St. Augustine, talked to this young group of young group of people. They're like in their mid 20s. They look like they were kids or something. So whose car is that? It's, not like, I don't know. it's probably Kyle and Audrey's. That happened to them last week. Anyways, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, I was talking to these young kids. And uh, talking about being self-righteous. I, I took the one kid. So remember how we talked about last time using the law in witnessing? So I used the law and I took the one guy through a few of the commandments. The dude, it, you would think he was the most sinless man. He never lied. He never stole. He never took God's name. Nothing. And he looked at me dead in the eyes with a straight face and said that he's never done that. I'm like, I can't get anywhere with this guy. You know, I don't know what to do at that point. That's, that's really frustrating. But... I knew somebody that went to church once, but they were hypocrites. Okay, Romans 14, verses 11 through 12. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. At the end of the day, it does not matter if there's a hypocrite in church that you don't like or you disagree with something they did because you have to stand before God. And really, that's the revelation that we all have to have. When you realize that I am going to stand before God, that'll change your life. Did for me. Everyone's going to stand before God. Job 13, 16. This is an interesting verse. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. So don't worry about the hypocrites. They aren't going to stand before God. You're going to stand before God. Amen. That's the answer to that. And I think of a... I thought of a coworker of mine who said this very thing. I think it was last year when we were talking. And uh, he had, a, he had a, a guy that was witnessing to him for a lot of years that he knew. This guy was the greatest Christian man. His kids were all in order and they, they were good kids. Well, the guy got arrested for trying to get a prostitute. What do you say to that? You know, well, he's a hypocrite. But that's his excuse for not coming to church or anything like that. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. We all have to give account of ourselves to God. So that's kind of what I thought how you'd answer that one. Next one. I've heard this before. My nephew was diagnosed with leukemia when he was eight. Why would God let this happen? Why would God let that happen? 
That is a tough one. Why would God let that happen? Immediately I want to say, well, it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. And it's not. It's really not God's fault. But from the perspective of somebody that's an unbeliever, why would God let... They think that God... He, you know, God may not be behind it, but God certainly allowed it to happen. God certainly allowed it to happen. God, God allows a lot of things to happen. A lot of bad things. Is that God's fault? We already talked about earlier. It's not God's fault that He allows things to happen. Man has a free will. Totally, 100%. Man is accountable for his own, his own choices and actions. And a lot of people will make excuse for certain people because of their upbringing or their background or they didn't have the best environment. There's some truth to that. But at the end of the day, you are accountable for your behavior no matter what your environment was. But why, the question is, why would God let something like that? Why would God allow a child to get cancer? I had a cousin that died at seven years old of cancer. Why would God let that happen? And I had some family members ask me that question. And you know... It's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know why God would let that happen. What I do know is that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. All things. And I don't necessarily know that I would say that immediately to somebody that's in a lot of pain, but it is a true statement. And I'll give you two examples. Okay. When I was at St. Augustine two weeks ago, before we left, a man named Joshua came up and talked to me. He's 33 years old. He was drunk. I don't know if everything that he said was true, but if what he said was true, he has had a rough year. And he had some very legitimate complaints. And he was a religious guy. He was Catholic. He kept saying all this stuff in Latin or whatever. But he got in my grill and wanted to give me a piece of his mind because of how, how God has treated him this past year. He said a year ago, his wife and his son were killed in a car accident. And then last month, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. That's rough. That's really, really rough. And he asked the question, why would God let that happen? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know what to tell him. And he was rightfully upset. But what, like I said, all what we do know is that all things work together for good. We talked for a while. The conversation went really well. We ended up talking for a long time. He gave me a hug afterwards, wanted to get my phone number. It was nice. I texted him the other day, told him I was praying for him. Another example that I've mentioned before is uh, my friend Connor's old fiance that passed away, Kristen, who was on her prayer list for two and a half years or something. She had cancer. Before she got saved, and she got truly saved, before she got saved, she was in church and asked her Baptist pastor why God would allow a 19-year-old girl to get terminal cancer. And you know what he said? He said, I don't know. And you know what? That's okay to say, I don't know. Because it wasn't but a few months later that she ended up trusting Christ and getting saved. Her life was changed. Totally different person. And she, she did not complain one time when she was in the worst pain of her life dying of that cancer so it's okay to say I don't know and she, you know her biggest concern was that her family would get saved but it's okay to say that alright next question the Bible was written by men so how do you know that it's true how do you know that it's true okay that's also a good question 
The next question that I would ask in response to that is, how do you know that anything is true? Right? Think about it. How do you know that anything is true? Seriously. No. What basis for knowledge and truth do we have? Okay. Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You cannot know anything without the fear of God. Without God and without the Bible, there is... The world doesn't make any sense at all. And we'll talk about this as we get towards number 10. This is kind of a hard concept to wrap your mind around. But I've been thinking about it a lot recently. It's been making a lot more sense. Because, first of all, everything is written by men. Everything is written by men. That's not a big deal. But second of all, the fact that people can reason together and talk and have dialogue and use logic that's, that's a biblical concept. Okay? That concept is found nowhere else in the world. So in order to argue against the Bible, you have to use biblical concepts to do that. Does that make sense? So we really can't know anything's, anything is true unless we know that the Bible is true. This is the, the footing that we stand on of, for having a discussion, period. So how do we know the Bible is written by men? 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, righteousness. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And a lot, and the person that might be objecting might say, well, you're using the Bible to, to tell me that, that you know that the Bible is true. That's circular reasoning, okay? It is. But my argument is this. Without the Bible, you can't know anything at all. It's, you know, you may, it may not make a lot of sense, but think about it. We'll talk about it as we get on the last question. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. Let's move on. Number six. Somebody said this to me a couple months ago. I was like you once, but then this happened to me. Something happened that knocked somebody completely out of the faith. Well, that person that says that, they're not the first, and they're not going to be the last. A lot of people are going to quit on God for all kinds of reasons. Um, John 6.66 says, And from that time forth, many of the Lord's disciples followed Him no more. So there were a lot of people that walked away. Uh, at one point, I believe it was John Mark that walked away from the Paul's missionary journey. And then Demas, he walked away. He was well known. So this is a common, a common one, people say. Then this happened to me. Okay, what you've got to understand is, now, when somebody says that to you, you don't necessarily need to throw the book at them. Here's what I mean. Because what, what they're telling you, when someone says, I was like you once, but then something happened to me, what they're telling you is their faith was tried and they didn't last. They gave up. They're quitters. So they're kind of defeated already. So I, I wouldn't try to beat them down. But to help you, Here's how we can think about this question. James 1.12 Blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is tried. When he is tried, you will be tried. When he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love me, that love him. Job 13.15 says, Though he slay me, 
yet will I trust him. This is something that we just have to, we have to decide. You've got to decide, no matter what the trial or temptation that comes my way, I'm not going to quit. It's a quitter's mentality. A lot of it, you know, you've got to be taught this at a young age in your home. You know, I wasn't allowed to be a quitter growing up. I did a lot of things I didn't enjoy for a long time because I just couldn't quit. My dad wouldn't let me. And you know what? It's good. It's a good thing because it sets you up for real life. Because in real life, your faith is going to be tried if it hasn't been already. And you're going to come to grips with, do I really want to deal with it? You're going to, you're going to be tried no matter what. Whether, you're, whether you go to church, whether you serve the Lord or you don't, you are not going to get away from trials in your life. Trials come to everybody. And it says that in the book of Job in another place. So the best place to be when your faith is tried is around other people that have had their faith tried and have passed through the fire. So don't end up like that. But that's a common objection people say. Number seven, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, how can he be God at the same time? Good question. Well, if a mortal sinful man can chew gum and walk at the same time, and can walk and talk and think at the same time, why couldn't the immortal, eternal, all-wise God be three things at the same time? Does that make sense? I don't know. I thought that was reasonable. Think about it. Simple answer. Okay, but let's go to the Bible. Colossians chapter 1. And verse number 12 says this, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of his darkness, and hath translated us, into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. There are tons of passages that, that teach that Jesus Christ is the Trinity, but that's not the question. The question already assumes the premise that you believe Jesus Christ is equal with God. The Bible tells us that. So how can he be God at the same time? Well, I don't know. The Bible tells me that. You could say that. That's a fair answer. I just believe the Bible. Or you could answer that way with logic and reasoning. We can do all, a lot of things or more than one thing at the same time. It's not that far-fetched. And you know, it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down is that the Trinity is everywhere in the universe. Even down to the very smallest thing. In science, the atom is made up of three parts. The proton, the neutron, and the electron. You have time, space, and matter. Go on and on and on. It's really interesting, but... Bible says so. Colossians 1 is a good place to start. Number eight, I would get saved, but I don't want to be a hypocrite, just like the one we had earlier. I don't want to be a hypocrite. How many have heard that before? Very noble. It sounds very, very noble, but it's a ridiculous excuse. And that's just all it is. Uh, the answer to that is, well, you, you don't want to be a hypocrite? Then don't be a hypocrite. No, seriously. If you're so high and mighty, be high and mighty as a Christian. That's just not a very good one, but definitely I've heard that many times. Number nine, I would read the Bible, but it is full of contradictions. Probably heard that a lot of times. The answer to that is name one. No, seriously, they, people will try to name one and there's tons of places that they'll go to. And when you're in that moment, you just got to see what they have. They'll probably have nothing to say. They've probably just heard someone smarter than them say that and they will, they'll not know it. They can't think of a contradiction, but if they do, you just go to that passage, look it up, and if you don't know how to answer it, just say, I'll get back to you. I don't know. I'll find out. They'd do the same thing. 
You know, if you, if you had an objection to someone that's an atheist, they'll say, well, I may not know, but I'll get back to you. I'm sure I'll find an answer. So, name one. That's how you answer that one. All right, and lastly, it takes faith to believe the Bible, and I believe in science. But it also takes faith to believe in science. Because if you believe anything, you're exercising faith. Is that fair? So, and you know what's so funny about that is, okay, back to the interview I referenced earlier where this scientific Christian was being interviewed. He, he, he made a good point about the history of science. The history of science in modern times comes straight from Christian principles, biblical principles. The scientific method does. And I couldn't prove that with all the verses to you, but I thought that was interesting. But it takes faith to believe the Bible, but I believe in science. True science always confirms the Bible. There's tons of places you could go. It says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. The circle of the earth hangs upon nothing. On and on and on and on. God stretched out to the heavens like a curtain. But it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Okay, so somebody believes in science. Therefore, they don't believe in the Bible because they don't want to have faith. So the question is this. How do you know what you observe in science is true? How can you know that? Because it says in Colossians, okay, let's see here. I don't think I wrote this one down. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. It says in Colossians 2, verse number 3, in whom, that would be Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like I said before, without a biblical worldview, you can't make sense or know anything. You need the Bible and you need Christ to have knowledge of anything at all. And I would recommend a book called The Ultimate Proof of Creation by Jason Lyle. Anybody ever heard of that book? Have you ever read that? Anybody? No. I've got it at my house. It's a good book. He talks about these concepts of, and he goes through these verses here. Without Christ, without the Bible, you can't know anything. We couldn't have an intelligible conversation. Because who's to say that we're, you know, we're, assu- we're assuming the same things are true? In the Bible, you have, from the Bible, you have uniformity and order all through creation. Things make sense. Things work together. The intelligent God made things intelligible for his created man. So we can look around and observe and understand the creation that our Creator made because we were made in His image. That's what it says. So, anyways, all sci- uh, true science always confirms the Bible. But that is a book I would highly recommend, is The Ultimate Proof of Creation. Good stuff. Um, okay, let's move on. We had five questions at the beginning. The second question was this. We already went through some common, uh, commonly asked objections to the Christian. The next question is, why would anyone object to this in the first place? Now, I heard this once. I think I heard it from Sam Gipp. He said, there are people that have questions that want answers, and there are people that have questions to just have questions. That's a good quote to remember. And you'll figure that out when you're talking to somebody, because some people really want to know, and those people you really want to help. But some people just really want to be a, a, a thorn in, this, in your side. They want to be a pain, and they want to just try to trip you up. Um, so I don't know. You know, when you're in that situation, 
I don't like talking to those people. People that try to be like that, you know, I'll just say, anyways, stick with, you know, keep the gospel the main thing. But, (laughs) all right. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. There, are, I mean, some people in our church, they like to talk to those kind of people. I don't. I really don't like to argue. I want you to turn to two places. Turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 and Acts chapter 8. Here's a couple of examples of those types of people. Mark chapter 12, we'll begin in verse number 12. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. And they said unto certain, and they said, they send unto certain, they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they said unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. That's a nice thing to say to Jesus. Very flattering. But they're trying to catch him in his words. So they ask him this question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or no? Do they really want to know the answer to that? No, they don't really want to know. Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he said unto them, Whose is the image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And they marveled at it. Okay. They didn't really want to know the answer to that question. They were trying to catch him in his words. Okay. Here's a man that really did want to know the answer to his question. Acts chapter 8. And let's begin in verse number 26. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, sitting in his chariot, read Esaias the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And Philip, and he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? This Ethiopian eunuch had a question, genuine questions that he really wanted answered. And so Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. So when this man has a genuine question, Philip goes through the scripture and he answers the question. And he preached unto him, Jesus And they went on their way, and they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Another genuine question. Philip answers and said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. 
And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Okay, two good examples. One, the Pharisees wanted to catch Jesus in his words. They had a question, but it wasn't a genuine question. Jesus called them on their hypocrisy. It's good to do that to people too. You can, you can politely put somebody in their place that's trying to be a pain like that. And then Philip is talking to this Ethiopian eunuch. He has a genuine question. And Philip answers with the scripture. And he follows up with more questions. They get answered. And he gets saved. Okay. How should a Christian, a Christian react to an objection? Turn to two more places. Colossians 4. 1 Peter 3. So how should we react to an objection? I would say that if somebody has an objection, I would say that's a good thing because they're thinking about what you're saying. They're engaged in the conversation. Colossians 4. Let's begin in verse number two. Continue in prayer, watching the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I, might, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. 1 Peter 3, verse number 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Okay. So how should a Christian react to an objection? Number one, you should be ready. You need to be prepared. Number two, you should answer kindly, with kindness. And number three, you should answer an objection with honesty. That is the key. Honesty is the key. The absolute worst thing you can ever do if you attempt to share your faith and somebody brings up an objection is try to make something up. You will look like a fool and have a bad testimony. So if you don't know how to answer something, just say, I really don't know. And people appreciate that. They don't expect you to know everything. And if you don't, just say, I don't know. So be ready, be kind, be honest. I think, you'll be very, I think you'll be respected by the person you're talking to if you're honest. Like I said, you don't have to know everything. Okay. So what should we do? Let's wrap this up. What should we do once we have answered these common objections? So let's say you're in a conversation with somebody that's going really good. They're engaged. They're listening. They have some objections. You're like, I have just the answer. Let's say it's this weekend. Brother Gage just went through all these things. I wrote them down. I memorized it. How could Jesus be God at the same time I threw this verse at him? He thought about it. What do you do at that point? I would say just let him think about it. Yeah. You know, let him think about it. You don't have to always fill the air with words. Remember that. Just let him think about it. Silence is sometimes a good thing. Because if you're talking to somebody and they're seriously thinking about it, you know, it, it might get quiet for a minute. Don't try to just interject just because you feel awkward, because you might. Just let them think about it and let them respond. It's a dialogue. <clears throat> when you're sharing your faith, 
you shouldn't be preaching like you are from a pulpit. You should be in a dialogue back and forth. You should learn how to talk to people and how to listen. The best part about talking to people is listening. The, the most important part is listening. So listen to what they have to say. And also, I would say, keep the focus on the gospel. That is the key. The goal is not to be able to win arguments with people. If you just win an argument, you may have won the battle, but you might have lost the war. If you win the argument, but you lose the person because you were kind of rude and in their face, that's not the point. That is not the point. Let them be right. If they really want to be right, just let them be right. The point of this lesson is to provide you with answers to objections so that you can ultimately reach this person with the gospel. That's the whole point. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to make you guys arrogant, smart people. Does that make sense? That's not what church is for. No. The reason you come here is so that you can learn how to be a better Christian. And when you're talking to people and you're listening to people, you need to behave like a Christian when you're doing that. When they have an objection, and sometimes it might be an insulting objection. You might be insulted. You can still be kind. Um, And I would say avoid an argument as much as possible. You can have a dialogue. You can have a back and forth. You can disagree, but avoid an argument, especially if you're around other people. It's not a good testimony. If someone, like I said, if someone is argumentative and they want to be right, just let them be right. End the conversation. You don't need to have the last word. And you know what? That's a good thing to remember when you get married someday too. Yeah. Just remember your wife is always right. <laughs> you don't need to have the last word because it looks really, really bad. It really looks bad. You're really not helping the cause. Like if we're in St. Augustine or something and you're trying to talk to somebody, and you're just arguing with them. Please stop. Like I, I've seen that so many times and I just want to go say, walk away. Like stop talking. It just, it looks so bad. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Remember that the goal is ultimately to get them the gospel. And you know what? Like I've said this in the past, I've said this in other sermons too. You don't need to always explain the entire gospel the one time you get to talk to somebody. They might not have time. They might not have to leave. But you might give them something to think about. You might plant a seed with something. You know? I was, uh, I think it was on the phone with like a Verizon or something. And I said, God bless you or something to the person before I hung up. And they said, you know, you're the second person today that said that. They said, I think God's trying to tell me something. That's kind of funny, ain't it? It kind of sparked a conversation with them. But you never know. You, know, you might just plant a little seed. So. But ultimately, that is the point. So I hope this was helpful. I hope you wrote these down. I hope you can remember these when you're in this situation. But remember at the same time, don't, don't fall into the trap of getting stuck in an argument. Just, you know. The main thing is that we reach them with the gospel. So that wraps it up. We're all